0: Hello, and welcome to World of Warbirds. I'm Brian Pierce. Hello, Warbirders. Before getting started, I'd like to do a few shout-outs. The first is a thank you to supporter Bruce Mahoney and super supporter Stan Marcus. Thank you so much. Lastly, to callsign Tanner. Thank you for your service, and stay safe over there. Okay, so you long term listeners know that since the beginning I've been saving back some of the most popular and my favorite warbirds as treats for later. Well, due to overwhelming demand and my own urge to finally break into one of those treats, here we finally look at the wooden wonder, the de Havilland Mosquito. Introduction The term thinking out of the box has become kind of cliché. But the development of the Mosquito is a beautiful example of unconventional thinking and sticking to defending your ideas, even against opposition, and perhaps even more importantly, against long-time disinterest. So, before we get anywhere near the Mosquito, we have to talk about Captain Sir Geoffrey de Havilland. The guy who stuck to his idea about the Wooden Wonder for so long, when so many were against it. De Havilland was born in 1854, and after his initial schooling and becoming an engineer, he started working on building cars, motorcycles, and engines. In 1909, he obviously got bitten badly by that aviation bug, and borrowed some cash from his grandfather to build his first airplane, which he crashed. But that didn't stop him. The next year he started working for the H.M. Balloon Factory at Farnborough, which the very next year was renamed the Royal Aircraft Factory. Things went better with the second and further airplanes, and by 1912 he was breaking the British altitude record of 10,500 feet in his aircraft called the BE-2. In that same year, he was commissioned as an officer in the Royal Flying Corps. In 1913, he switched companies when the Royal Aircraft Factory assigned him to an inspecting role rather than a designing role. Over at Airco, he resumed his designing work and whatever airplanes were dreamed up by him got the de Havilland designation, or DH. Although he did serve briefly as a flying officer during the war, he was quickly returned to Airco, where I guess they thought his work would be more useful. Although he did remain in the service with the rank of captain and then flight commander until the end of the conflict. In 1920, Airco went bust, and de Havilland and some partners formed the de Havilland Aircraft Company. The company built a raft of different kinds of aircraft, probably having the most success with their Moth series of bi-wing trainers that ended up being basically the ab initio trainer for, if not the world, then at least the British Commonwealth. At one time, saying moth meant a shorthand for a smaller training aircraft, kind of like how Cessna is used today. There was a whole range of moths. I mean, I'd heard of the Gypsy and Tiger moths prior to researching this, but it turns out they were Cirrus moths, genet moths, Moth Majors, giant moths, fox moths, puss moths, swallow moths, hawk moths, leopard moths, and hornet moths. At this point we're going to jump ahead a bit to get away from this swarm of moths to look at a more substantial and advanced DH aircraft. The de Havilland DH-91 Albatross. This was designed in 1936 as a male plane but could also be configured to carry about 20 passengers. This was a sleek, very clean looking aircraft. If you know what the Lockheed Constellation looks like, then think of that, but with a twin tail rather than a triple. It was smaller than the Connie though, and was so sleek that it looks kind of dainty. Which I guess maybe it was, as one of the first prototypes broke up during testing. They only built seven examples, but these gave good service until they were all scrapped by 1943 due to a lack of spare parts. So why did I even mention the albatross then? It was because it was built with a ply balsa ply wooden sandwich construction, which might just come in useful later. Again in 1936, the British Air Ministry published specification P1336, which was seeking a twin-engined medium bomber that could carry between 3,000 and 8,000 pounds of bombs at 275 miles per hour at up to 3,000 mile range, although for the heavier loads it was expected that range would be sacrificed. This was the specification that would lead to the Halifax, the Manchester, and the Lancaster. If you're thinking, wait a minute, those aircraft are nothing like the Mosquito. Yes, you would be right. The aforementioned heavies eventually all had four engines, except for the Manchester, and were all bristling with turrets and guns and had multiple crewmen to run them. Geoffrey de Havilland thought that he could meet or exceed the requirements of P-1336 by going another way. He planned to use his recent albatross design as a jumping-off point. This would save time in designing. Also, he would continue using the wooden materials in the new bomber figuring that in any future conflict, not having to rely on supplies of scarce materials would give his company a leg up. He planned to create a small bomber with such an aerodynamically smooth body and minimal skin friction that he wouldn't need the weight of so many turrets, guns, ammo, gunners, etc. He proposed using two Rolls-Royce Merlins, with backup engines being the Bristol Hercules and Napier Sabre. In July 1938, de Havilland wrote a letter to Air Marshal Wilfred Freeman, who was in charge of research and development for the government's Air Council, stressing the benefits of wood over metal in all ways, including availability, lightweight, and strength. In October, another letter was sent, this time suggesting basically the same idea, but with three crew members, six to eight forward-firing guns, and perhaps a tail-turret. However, de Havilland had either already decided, or soon did decide, to go whole hog on his original concept and presented this as such to the Air Ministry in late 1938. He presented the idea for a twin-engine, very clean aircraft with two crew members and no defensive armament. Speed would be the defense. The air ministry demurred and suggested that de Havilland build wings for other serious, and you know, real bombers. But de Havilland kept at it, playing with combinations of engines and configurations and paying for it himself the whole way. In October 1939, the proposal was made again. Twin engines, smooth airframe, Speed is defense, two crewmen, and four cannon in the nose. The Air Ministry still didn't see it. They wanted defensive guns and at least one other crewman to share in the workload. Although de Havilland made mock-ups of the aircraft with defensive guns, they were still convinced of their original scheme. Finally, in November 1939, Things seemed to get moving with the acceptance of the de Havilland airplane as a fast reconnaissance bomber. Although the Ministry still wanted a four-gun turret in the back, de Havilland got the tail end Charlie dropped and a meeting was booked with the RAF to present the idea. In early December the meeting occurred and now it was the RAF that couldn't see it. They didn't want an unarmed bomber, but they would accept an unarmed photo-recon aircraft. The door had been opened a crack. Between then and March 1940, there seemed to be plenty of juggling trying to figure out if the plane was going to be a bomber or photography aircraft. But finally a contract was signed for 50 bomber reconnaissance variants of what was now designated the DH-98. In June, the DH-98 had been named Mosquito, but the project was in jeopardy again following Dunkirk and the evacuation of the BEF from France. It looked as though for defense of the island nation, fighters would be needed more than bombers. De Havilland stated that the plane could be a fighter too. Why not? And so a prototype for a fighter version was authorized and kept the project on life support, but barely. Although Lord Beaverbrook, the Minister of Aircraft Production, wanted the project killed, the order never got passed on. Eventually, the order was passed on, and delivery of materials were blocked for a time, and de Havilland workers downed tools on the Mosquito. Was it ever going to get built... In July, the order to stop was lifted after de Havilland promised that the pesky mosquito project would not affect the company's primary tasks of producing tiger moths and airspeed oxfords, repairing hurricanes, and building Merlin engines under license. De Havilland also promised 50 mosquitoes by the end of 1941, and now it looked like the mosquito was going to happen after all. Design and development. Although building airplanes out of wood had become considered passé, it wasn't really a step backwards, but rather a jump forwards, pointing towards what composite material construction would someday become. Using these various wooden elements, plywood, balsa, plywood, in building the fuselage would result in low weight, but also great strength and stiffness. Many other types of timber were used for various parts of the aircraft depending on the qualities of the type of wood. Other types used were ash, douglas fir, and walnut. The fuselage was put together in two halves, with all the control mechanisms and cables installed before the halves were put together in a process known as boxing up. Once the parts were glued together, clamps held everything in place until the adhesive had cured. After that, a skin of cotton fabric was stretched over the parts and covered over with multiple layers of dope and finely camouflage paint. The shoulder-mounted wing was also made of wood covered with cotton and dope, with metal ailerons, although the flaps were wood and hydraulically powered. The engine nacelles were mostly made of wood, although the engine mounts were made of welded steel tubes. Engine radiators were fitted in the inner wing between the fuselage and the engines. These were split in three sections for oil cooling, the main coolant radiator, and cabin heating. The wings contained fuel tanks. The two outer wing tanks each contained 70 US gallons while the two inner wing fuel tanks each held 172 US gallons. There were also two more tanks in the fuselage. Initially 545 US gallons was a full fuel load engines were two Merlin 21's with two speed single-stage superchargers turning three-bladed de Havilland hydromatic constant speed controllable pitch propellers each engine nacelle contained a 15 US gallon oil tank and one engine drove an alternator while the other powered a generator Electrically operated systems were the radiator shutters, supercharger gear changer, the gun camera, bomb bay doors, and bomb or rocket releases. Each engine contained a fire extinguisher. The landing gear was raised and lowered hydraulically and the shock absorbers were a system of rubber discs. Brakes were pneumatically powered and the tail wheel retracted also. The crew of two, which were the pilot and navigator, sat side by side. Initially, the nose was to be transparent, like the Bristol Blenheim. But, ultimately, a solid nose was decided upon. Prototypes. Unlike so many aircraft we have talked about in this podcast, even at the time of the building of the prototypes, it was uncertain exactly what kind of aircraft the Mosquito was bound to become. The orders had been changed to 20 bombers and 30 fighter versions, but as gun turrets hadn't been completely ruled out, three prototypes were planned, with two of them having defensive gun positions. In November 1940, the first prototype, E-0234, began its engine run and taxi trials, and on the 25th of that month, took off for the first time. Being piloted by the company test pilot, who just happened to be Jeffrey de Havilland, Jr. During the test flights, it was noticed that the landing gear doors wouldn't close all the way and that the aircraft had a slight pull to the left, requiring adjustment. More seriously, another prototype, serial number W4050, exhibited tail buffeting, or shaking, when the aircraft was in the 240 to 255 mph range. At this speed, the control column would start to shake, and then the aircraft would become more and more difficult to keep under control. To discover the problem, small pieces of wool yarn were attached to the surfaces in order to see the airflow. And sure enough, it was discovered that in this speed range, the airflow was breaking away from the rear section of the engine nacelles, causing disturbed air to hit the tailplane, causing the buffeting. The same machine was fitted with a gun turret behind the cockpit for testing until finally this notion was fully given up in July 1941. The fix for the buffeting was to include fillets on the trailing edge of the wings and to lengthen the engine nacelles to about 10 inches beyond the trailing edge of the wing. This design change smoothed the airflow and directed it away from the tailplane. It did mean that the flaps had to be divided into inboard and outboard sections. But with the fixes being incorporated, test pilots were reporting that the aircraft was light on the controls and had generally pleasant handling characteristics. When it came to speed, in February 1941, speed trials put the Mosquito at 20 to 30 miles per hour faster than the Spitfire. Prototype W-4052 was configured as a day and night fighter and was fitted with bulletproof windscreen and 4-303 British Browning machine guns in the nose. Four 20mm Hispano Mark II cannon were located in a compartment under the cockpit floor. The breeches of these cannon extended into the bomb bay and cartridge ejector chutes were built into the manually operated Bay doors. For night fighting, the aircraft was equipped with Mark IV radar equipment and painted black. Later on, this same aircraft tested other features including bomb racks, drop tanks, barrage balloon cable cutters, braking propellers, and drooping aileron systems. So, with the prototypes proving that the Mosquito was to be one of the fastest operational aircraft in the world, and able to do these multiple varied roles in June 1941, the Air Ministry finally was convinced and ordered 19 photo reconnaissance versions, 176 fighters, and 50 unarmed fast bombers. It was time to start thinking about production, and that is what we are going to look at in the next episode. Thanks again to all who support the podcast via PayPal at wo wb17 and if you haven't please consider i support the podcasts that i listen to if you like to watch as well as listen check out the youtube channel and you can purchase warbird merch at the kit shop you can also check out some photos of what we've been talking about on the facebook page until next time